Well, let's pray before we come uh, before his word. Lord, I pray that as we have been singing, that all of us in our hearts would be able to say that nothing we desire compares with you. Lord, as we read in your word tonight, that there is nothing that compares to knowing Jesus. And Lord, we know you through your word, and I pray that as we come before your word, that you would help us to know you more. And Lord, I pray that as we hear from you, that you would help our mind to focus on you. Lord, that we would desire to know Jesus more than we desire anything else tonight. And Father, I pray that you would challenge our hearts this evening. Help us to realize how wonderful you are. What a wonderful saviour. Help us to realize that we need to get to know you all the more. And we pray, Lord, that you would change us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hopefully you have your Bibles open in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be there uh, this evening. We're not going to go really anywhere from uh, uh, Philippians 3. Well, we're coming up to Christmas now, and maybe some of you are in the festive uh, spirit. Maybe some of you uh, get a bit uh, miserable at this time of year. I don't know which you are. Uh, But I'm in the middle, really. In some ways, I'm really uh, excited and joyful. Uh, My in-laws are coming over, so of course I'm really joyful about that. Uh, We've just had, though, Black Friday, uh, which is something I didn't realise until this year. It's the day after Thanksgiving in America, and apparently you can get all sorts of deals at Asda, apparently. And uh, people were rushing there to get all their deals. Uh, We've had Cyber Monday, which is the busiest uh, online shopping day of the year. That was, I think, uh, Monday just, just gone. And yesterday apparently was the busiest shopping day of the year where everyone descended to all the shopping centres and uh, in a rush to buy all of their presents before Christmas. And for many, rather than being a season of great joy, it becomes a season of great stress and a major strain on finances. And I wonder what you are most excited about this Christmas, if you're excited at all. Are you excited about presents and food and family time and television shows and carol services? Well, all these things are really good. But are you most excited about Christ? Is he the biggest joy of your Christmas? Is he the centre of all of your festivities this year? Or is it all of the other things? Well, in this section of Philippians, Paul tells us how, to him, Christ is better than anything else. Everything else doesn't even compare to Jesus. And this Christmas, as we lead into the season, I want you to know, through his word and in your hearts, that Jesus is not just the best thing about Christmas... He is the best thing there is to know above anything, Christmas or otherwise. 
And he begins this section in chapter 3 of his letter by saying the word further. He's moving on now from the previous chapter to another uh, subject, if you like. But at the same time, we'll notice that some of the things we see here draw on some of the things and themes that have been said previously. But he begins with the exhortation to his brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And of course, this is a common theme uh, in Paul's letter to Philippi. If you buy a whole bunch of commentaries on Philippians, most of them would have joy or rejoice in the title somewhere. And the word joy or rejoice appears 11 times in the four chapters. But it's important to notice what the believers are asked to rejoice in. They are asked to rejoice in the Lord. And that's what we're to do over this Christmas, isn't it? To rejoice in the Lord, not in everything else. The key problem that Paul writes about in this chapter, though, is having confidence in the flesh. And if we have confidence in the flesh, we'll want to rejoice in the flesh. We'll want to say, look how good I am. Look at what I have done. But Paul tells them to rejoice in the Lord. And those with confidence in Christ, who have given their lives to him based on what he's done for us in our salvation, rejoice in him. They point to him. They shine as stars in the sky for Jesus Christ. But as we rejoice in the Lord, Paul also tells us to watch out. And at the end of verse 1, Paul appears to tell us that he's written about some of the problems we're going to see before. He must have written about having confidence in the flesh to the Philippians before this part. And he must have warned them before about watching out for those who preach and teach that we should have confidence in the flesh. He says, It is no trouble to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Now he may be referring uh, to something he's written before in this letter, or he may be referring to another letter that he wrote, we just don't know, but it appears that Paul seems to constantly say the same things over and over again. And, And godly leaders do this. They repeat things, that are important. And we, we do this, don't we, as, as, as Christians? We often repeat the gospel message. We often talk about the death and resurrection of Christ. We remember it during communion, don't we? Because it's important to remind ourselves again and again. And Paul's important message here that he has repeated to the Philippians before was the warning of not having confidence in the things of the flesh ahead of the things of Christ. That it's better to know Jesus than it is to have anything in this world. And the things of the flesh are anything that doesn't last in this world. They're basically the things that we so often, don't we, put ahead of Jesus. We have more confidence, don't we, in our, in our homes, in our bank accounts, in our families, in our friends, in our reputations, in our good works, in so many other things. And we work harder at building up these things than we do at building our relationship with Christ and knowing him. And Paul is telling us here that as we rejoice in the Lord, we do so knowing that we have confidence in Christ and not to have confidence in the flesh. And the first thing he tells us about this is to watch out for those who teach that we must have confidence in the flesh. Now the early church in Philippi 
uh, had a problem with what are known as Judaizers. They were Jewish false teachers that taught that in order to be a true Christian, you needed to also observe the law in the Old Testament like the Jews did. And the specific issue was circumcision. They taught that all men, once they were saved, also needed to be circumcised. And Paul talks about them in verse 2 in not very polite terms. It was an awful uh, false teaching that taught that to be truly saved, to be a real Christian, you needed to do something other than just trust in Christ for salvation. Look what he calls them. He says, those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Well, let's look at these names. Dogs. Well, this isn't referring to uh, the lovely pets or the, the guide dogs that Alan and Mary bring along to church. These are wild dogs. They were scavengers and they plagued cities like Philippi, feeding from the bins and occasionally attacking humans. And it's actually a name that the Jews called the Gentiles. They would call Gentiles dogs because like dogs, they, they didn't really differentiate or care about what they ate. They didn't observe the, 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 the food rituals and, and the washing of cups and plates in the same way the Jews did. Basically, Gentiles were seen as unclean, just like dogs. But Paul turns this on its, on its head. He says that the Jewish teachers are like dogs. They plague the church like dogs plague the city. Their teaching is filthy like the wild dogs. And they are vicious and they are dangerous like the wild dogs are. He then calls them evildoers. Now this is a bit like the parable in Matthew chapter 13 of the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds. In the parable there's a man and he sows good seed. But there's an enemy that comes and he sows weeds within this soil. And they grow together and the weeds uh, take, uh, help to take, come up in this soil along with the wheat. And when the farmer comes in the harvest time, he picks out uh, the wheat and he burns the weeds. And the false teachers are like the evildoer in that story, in that parable. They are sowing uh, weeds, false teaching within the church. And it needs to be destroyed and taken out. And then he says that they are mutilators of the flesh. Now this is a specific description to the circumcision that they were teaching about. Paul says that relying on a circumcision to save you is pointless. It's just like mutilating the flesh. It's just like cutting yourself for the sake of it. It's like saying that you need water baptism to save you. And it's just like that's getting wet. That's what Paul's saying. It's like saying, relying on baptism to save you, you're just getting wet. It doesn't mean anything. It's, an, and it's, a, it's just an external thing. But circumcision was an outward ritual that showed what God has done, that shows God's covenant with his people. Like baptism is an outward expression of what God has already done on the inside. If you're doing that to save you, you're just getting wet. And circumcision, Paul says, they're just mutilators of the flesh. There's no spiritual meaning. There's no, nothing godly about what they're doing. 
And Paul says that those who teach a works-based salvation are like dogs because their teaching is filthy, vicious, and dangerous. They are evildoers because they stop people coming to Christ. And they teach things which are pointless in following. Now at the moment, our children are really young and we're, we're teaching them how to cross the road. And the biggest and most important thing we're teaching them about crossing the road is to look both ways uh, for traffic either side. And uh, when they're uh, crossing, to wait for the, the red light to, to come on and the green man to, to show so that they can cross the road. And we teach them that they are not to cross if they see cars coming from either way or if the light is still green and cars can potentially come. Because if they don't do that, there's a danger, isn't there? That they could get knocked over and even killed. And Paul is saying that there is a danger that we need to watch out, just like I teach my children to look out for the cars on the road. Paul says, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. Because that false teaching can infiltrate the church and cause immense damage. Well, how do we as a church watch out for this today? What should we be looking for? Well, there's loads of these uh, heresies, these false teachings that are around us today. Watch out for those who teach a prosperity gospel, that you will receive health, wealth, and happiness if you follow Christ. That's false. Paul writes later on, uh, when he writes to Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not will be wealthy or healthy or anything like that. In fact, he teaches quite the opposite, doesn't he? Watch out for those who say that in order to be saved, you must have such and such a spiritual gift. We had a guy over our house uh, just the other week, and he said he didn't feel like he was a, a true Christian because he was told that you can't be saved unless you have a spiritual gift. The Bible says that's not true. You're saved by Christ alone, through faith in him. Watch out for legalism. People that preach that you have to live by certain rules in order to be saved. Watch out for universalism. People that say that it doesn't matter what you believe. You can get to God anyway. And when we hear these things, and when we meet people who believe in these things, we need to confront them and tell them that this is wrong. We need to show what the Bible really says. But we need to watch out for it, even in our church here in Pelsall. And you may think, well, no, uh, we, we talked at Table Talk last week about being faithful to God's word. Well, yes, we did. But we need to watch out for it amongst one another. It's easy for these things to slip in, uh, in into conversations and all sorts of things. Let's watch out for one another to make sure that we're teaching and speaking the truth of God's word. We need to have confidence, not in the flesh, but in God. And that's Paul's uh, next point. Christians have confidence in God, not in the flesh. Paul says at the beginning of verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision. What he's saying is, it's the, the Christians are the true circumcision. The Christians are the ones who are really uh, the ones who are right. For we who are the the circumcision, he notes here three things that a true Christian demonstrates. If you look at verse 3, we who serve God by his spirit. A true Christian 
does not serve God by his own strength, or, but he serves God with the assistance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God has given them. A believer does not rely on themselves, but realizes that they can only do anything because God is with them through his Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a, a free gift given to us at conversion, and the role of the Spirit is to help us to glorify God. And we serve God by his Spirit, by demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit, which glorifies Jesus as we shine for him. False teachers, on the other hand, serve themselves by themselves, by their own strength and their own abilities. A true Christian, he says, are those who boast in Christ Jesus. A true Christian doesn't boast about themselves, but as they serve God through the Spirit, boast only in Jesus Christ. And a believer should constantly be pointing people upwards to Jesus, not to themselves. False teachers don't do that, do they? These Judaizers were constantly telling people to look at how they were living. But as believers of the true circumcision, we are to point people to Jesus. And then he says, and and who put no confidence in the flesh. A true Christian has confidence in Christ and not in the flesh. They rely on what Jesus has done to save them, rather than anything they have done. False teachers, on the other hand, rely on works to save them. But a Christian relies on Christ, on his death and his resurrection. And it's this point of not having confidence in the flesh and relying only on what Christ has done that Paul focuses his attention throughout the rest of this section. Paul said that if anyone had reason to believe that you could rely on your own works to save them, it is him. He goes on to list, before his conversion, what he was, showing that these Jews that were teaching that you had to become like them to be saved were false. He counters their arguments by looking at himself. And he gives a whole list of things that can't save you. He says he himself has reasons for such confidence. He's saying if, if the Jew, Judaizers are right, if anyone could have confidence in the flesh, it's me. But he's saying they're wrong. He first of all says that religious rituals do not save. save. He said he was uh, circumcised on the eighth day. Now many Jews were circumcised later in life, but Paul says that he was circumcised on the eighth day, the, the exact day, Uh, that that he was supposed to be according to the law. But observance of this ritual didn't save him. He says he was of the people of Israel. His race didn't save him. Paul was not a convert to Judaism. He was born into it. He was of the lineage of Abraham, born as a Jewish child. But being born a Jew doesn't save. In fact, being born into a Christian family doesn't save you. He says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now many could not trace their ancestry at this time, but Paul could. He was a Benjamite. And this was a very important and respected tribe in Israel. Now Benjamin, uh, you may or may not know, was uh, the youngest of Jacob's sons and uh, one born to his favorite wife. And the Benjamites were part of the kingdom of Judah after Israel was divided. That was, if you like, the better kingdom, the one that had some good kings, as opposed to Israel, who only had the bad ones. 
And the Jewish heroes of Esther and Mordecai were Benjamites. You see, this tribe was a very prominent tribe. If you could say you were from there, it was a sign of, of, of great social rank. But rank doesn't save. High social ranking does not save you. And even today, people think that they're, you, know, you can be of a high position in society. Even, I dare say, a high position in the church. But that is not what saves you. That is not what you have confidence in. It says he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Tradition doesn't save. And Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, meaning he kept the Jewish traditions to the letter. He was an orthodox. Paul read and spoke in Hebrew, the original language of the Jews, rather than like most other people who spoke in Aramaic or Greek. He studied under Gamaliel, a very highly respected teacher, but traditions And being under respected teachers and all these things do not save you. And church traditions do not save you. You may have been under uh, some very uh, prominent uh, teachers in your time. I don't know. But they don't save you. Having them as your teacher or pastor doesn't save you. Church traditions do not save you. Paul says in regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. Religious work doesn't save you. He was part of the the strictest sect of his religion. He would have followed their traditions. He would have been looked up to by everybody. He would have been seen by others as a righteous man. And he would have done all the things, kept all the laws and all the rules that these Pharisees would have kept. But religious works, following the rules, doesn't save. As for zeal, he says, persecuting the church. Well, religious zeal doesn't church. Most Jews would have been happy plodding along as, as just everyday Jews, but not Paul the Apostle, or before, but not when he was Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee. He was so zealous, he persecuted the church. And he says, as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Legalism, doing all the rules and regulations, He did it so closely that no one could point the finger at Paul and say, well, no, you don't follow this rule. Paul followed them to the letter. But following rules doesn't save because it doesn't deal with our hearts. If they were to look at Paul's heart, they would see something completely different to what they saw on the outside. Legalism, following the rules, doesn't save. And however good the false teachers think they are, They could never externally be anywhere near as as great a Jew as Paul was before he was saved. And there are uh, the first three things in that list. Paul uh, couldn't do anything about it. He was born into them. He was born a great Jew. And the other things in the list, he did himself externally. So in his birth and in the way he lived, he was the greatest Jew you could ever imagine. But what does Paul think of those things in verse 7? He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. All those things that people would have thought, wow, what, a, what an amazing uh, spiritual and, and righteous man. Paul says, no, no, they're lost now for the sake of Christ. And Paul talks of an exchange here, like, in a, like a bank account. What was in the profit column is actually in the loss column. His own self-righteousness, he says, is a loss because it stopped him gaining the true riches of Jesus Christ. It was like having a bunch of shares. In the old days, before I 
would have known anything about it. Apparently, you could have paper shares. And uh, you could have a whole pile of these things uh, stacked up. And you might think, wow, how wealthy am I? But they could be worthless, couldn't they? They could be worthless. And that's what Paul had. He had a whole stack of things which people thought, wow, that's really valuable. But they were worthless. I remember a few uh, number of years back, I, I've always been quite frugal with food. Like, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but I hate throwing food away and always try and make things out of it to save money and all sorts of things. And years ago, you may remember that Jamie Oliver had like a special thing on where he was doing these school meals, and he said that the school meals per head are costing about 10p per child. And he did these recipes uh, that you could do for 10p, and I thought they were ones you were supposed to try and do. But what he was trying to point out was that they were really rubbish. And I decided, wow, to save money, I'm going to try and make my own pasta. And I gave this a go, thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll make my own pasta and it will save us a fortune, Paula. You know, 10p ahead. So I could do all this for the two of us for 20p. And, you know, I mean, pasta's cheap anyway, so how tight am I? But anyway, but I tried making this pasta to save what I thought was going to be a small fortune. But it was a disaster. It ended up being just a sticky mess. And I tried, I tried eating it, and it was just unedible. And by the time I'd attempted to do it, I realized that time was going on. We were all starving, and we had nothing in the cupboards. So I had to go and buy a takeaway, which cost far more than a packet of dry pasta would have anyway. You see, I thought that it would be a gain to me to make this pasta. But it ended up costing me. And in a more serious way, Paul is saying a similar thought. He was doing all this stuff because he thought it was a gain to him. But it ended up costing him so much because it stopped him coming to Christ. And what about you? You may be here this evening thinking that you're a Christian because you attend church. Or you may be a Christian because you were born into a Christian family. You may think you're able to get to heaven because of your reputation in society or the good deeds that you do for charity. You may think you keep the Ten Commandments or you keep the traditions of the church. Well, in and of themselves, these things may not necessarily be bad. But if you have confidence in them to save you, it's a loss. Only Jesus Christ and the work that he has already done for you on the cross can save us. Everything else is a loss if it stops you coming to Christ. But even as Christians, we can fall back into the things that Paul considered a loss and make them of too much importance. And don't we argue over those very things that Paul says are a loss to him? Conduct of church rituals like the Lord's Supper or baptism. Traditions of the church that have always been done that way. Rules and regulations that you follow that you think everybody else should be doing as well. Such as our views on alcohol or the way we dress or the version of the Bible we read or the songs we sing. And when we fall out over these things, the devil gets a foothold because we're putting confidence in those things rather than the cause of Christ. And for the sake of Christ, we must consider those things as a loss in comparison to the cause of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. We must have confidence in the saving work that he has done for us on the cross and the power of his resurrection. This should be our primary focus above all other things. Everything, Paul says, is a loss for Christ, for the sake of Christ. But Paul goes on to say more than this. 
because he becomes more general in verse 8. He says that knowing Jesus is better than anything of the flesh. He says, what is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He moves on from the specific outward things that he himself was doing to everything else. Everything in this world, he says, is of incomparable worth. When it says um, everything is of surpassing worth, he's talking about nothing compares. Everything compared to Jesus is incomparable. The greatest things of this world don't even compare to Jesus. Jesus is so great, his majesty is so awesome, that nothing, not one thing in this world comes even within comparison. You see, it's more than just saying Jesus is better than. It it doesn't even compare. It's surpassing worth knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. And when Paul writes about knowing, he doesn't mean just knowing about. Now I'm reading, or I've read this year, and I've got another volume to read, a biography of Theodore Roosevelt. Now I can tell you all sorts of really interesting facts about Theodore Roosevelt. I'm not going to, but I could do. And you might think, wow, you know a lot about Theodore Roosevelt. And you might be right, I know a lot about him. But I've never met the man, I'll never know him. Paul isn't talking about that with Christ. And it's a danger for us, especially for us uh, who have uh, children, to pass on a whole bunch of head knowledge to our children, isn't it? And it's my prayer for my children that they don't just know about Jesus, but that they know him. And there's a difference, isn't there? And when Paul says here, uh, nothing compares to knowing Christ Jesus, he's talking about knowing him personally. Uh, like Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, Now this is eternal life, that you, they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Not know about, that they know you personally. And in order to have eternal life, we must know God personally through Jesus Christ. And compared to knowing Christ personally, Paul says everything else doesn't even compare. In fact, compared to Christ, Paul says uh, he considers them garbage that he may gain Christ. He says, I consider everything a loss. Um, And then uh, at the end of verse 8, I consider them rubbish or garbage. Now, I really like the authorised version here because it gets, uh, it's a little less tactful, but it gets it right. It says uh, in the authorised version, everything else is dung. Dung. Now, coming from Devon, I know all about that. You can smell it everywhere you drive. And in fact, uh, you get dung for free in Devon. You you can go uh, drive along in the lanes and there's signs saying free manure. And you just pick it up because it, it, there's so much of it, it just isn't worth anything. And yet the world sells us dung all the time and we buy it, don't we? We buy it. The rampant materialism of our day, all the gadgets and fast cars and, and diamonds and pearls are dung when compared with Christ. The worldly wisdom of the world today, the knowing lots of things and accumulating more and more knowledge is dung when compared with Christ. The false religion of this world that relies on self-righteousness to save us is dung. Our reputations that we cultivate and build and try to maintain and try to look good is dung when compared with knowing Jesus Christ. 
Our careers that we can spend years forging, when compared with Jesus, are dung. Now, do you think of things this way? Do you think of all of that as dung when compared with knowing Christ? So how do we know Jesus? Well, Paul tells us some familiar doctrine here that is good to repeat. And I spoke about it last time I preached in chapter 2. And it's those three words, justification, sanctification, glorification. And these things, this salvation, and those three words, the truth of them, should be so wonderful to us that everything else is as dung. It's like the manure you can pick up in Devon for free. In verse 9 he says, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. This again is justification. The righteousness, not our own righteousness, because all our righteousness, Isaiah tells us, is as filthy rags. Not our righteousness that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God. Justification, the righteousness that Jesus has, is exchanged for our unrighteousness. He took it on himself on the cross and he gives us his righteousness so that when God looks upon you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees his son, his perfect, sinless son. That's what's been done for us. We've been saved. The righteousness that comes from God. That should be worth more to us than anything. Everything when compared to to, to our justification is dung. But Paul goes on to talk about knowing Christ more. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And the Greek word there for know is different to the one before. You see, in this verse, in verse 8, sorry, the, the word know is a singular word, gnosis, which is Uh, general knowledge, knowing them personally. But this word in verse 10 is gnosko, which is to get to know, and it's progressive. So we know Jesus, it's been done at the cross, we know him, and this word is to get to know him. Gnosko, getting to know him. See, when I met Paula, and I know Paula, I know her, she's my wife, and I'm still getting to know her. We get to know each other more and more, um, and there's still things like, it was only recently I could find out she could unlock uh, combination locks, as you learned the other week. We get, I get to know her more. And that's what Paul's saying here, getting to know Christ. This is the present work of salvation. We've been saved, and we're being saved, or sanctification. And we do this through two things that Paul says. First of all, through the power of his resurrection. The power of the resurrection. The resurrection is what gives us new life, isn't it? We were dead in our trespasses and sins and we have been made alive through Christ's death and resurrection. And the the resurrection power is the new life that we have in Christ that changes us into his image. And it's that resurrection power that is continually molding us and shaping us. And we need this power in order to overcome sin. We need this power in order to serve Christ. That's what Paul says earlier on when he talks about we work by his spirit. And he says we know Christ through the power of his resurrection. But we also know Christ, he says, through participation in his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death. We get to know Christ more as we participate in his suffering. And when Jesus was on earth, he suffered, didn't he? And we share his sufferings. He suffered physical pain. He suffered the pain of battling temptation. He suffered the pain of others suffering because of sin in their lives. He suffered the pain of bereavement. He suffered the pain of the weight of sin as he took it from us on the cross. And we'll never suffer in the same way as Jesus did. But we participate in his sufferings as we know his fellowship with us as we suffer. See, we suffer like he suffered, not in exactly the same way, but like he suffered, we suffered. But we suffer with him. He's with us as we suffer. But we also participate in his sufferings in our self-sacrifice. We become like him in his death by putting to death the old man in us, by sacrificing those sinful ways to Christ and living for him. And this can be slow, this can be painful, this can be hard, isn't it? As we sacrifice the old man. There may be uh, people we have to cut off or walk away from as we upset them with our new life. There may be people we have to humble ourselves before and seek forgiveness. There may be people we have to share shameful things with as we are accountable to them and need help from them. But death is painful. And we participate with Christ in his suffering, becoming like him in his death as we sacrifice for him. And often it can be our times of greatest fellowship with God We can get to know God all the more and in a better way as we suffer with him. We know that to be true, don't we? As we suffer with Christ, we can know him even more. And as we get to know Jesus more, Paul writes these words of hope in verse 11. And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Now when Paul says somehow here, he's not saying... um, any doubts, like, oh, I wonder how I'm going to become, uh, how I'm going to be resurrected. What he's saying is, somehow, God has saved me. Somehow, God has saved me. I don't know why. I can't understand how he could love me. It's like uh, that, that wonderful old hymn, I wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. But he has. Somehow, Paul attains the resurrection of the dead. And this is the final part of salvation, glorification. Somehow, God has chosen him so that he can be raised from the dead. And one day, the Bible tells us that we will have new bodies. I was sharing this with our brother on Friday, Les. We were saying how wonderful it is that as we, our bodies get older, and as we feel frail, we can have such a wonderful hope that God will raise us from the dead to have a new body in Christ. And these wonderful truths that we have been saved, that we are being saved that we will be saved, that we will have a new body, are of such amazing wonder and value and worth that in comparison to knowing these things personally in our hearts, everything else is as dung when compared. 
We uh, bought a, a new car a few years back, and it was a people carrier because we uh, needed it for the young people to take them to and from uh, places that we were going. And on the first day that we got the car, it was brand spanking new, shining everything. It was that day that on our youth program, we were taking them to Dartmoor to go to a place called Cadover Bridge. And they all piled in the car, and I did. I turned around and said to them all, now be careful, this is a new car, and uh, I'm, I'm really, you know, I want to look after it and all that kind of thing. And we took them to Cadover. And they got out of the car, and they behaved really well all the way there. But when we arrived, they jumped in the water, they rolled in the mud, they had a, had a blast, but all I could think was, oh no, <laughs> I've got to take these kids home. And sure enough, they got in the car, and my car looked like dung after they finished with it. And at first, in my, my sin, I was really frustrated, but then I realized, you know what? That car is to be used for God's glory. In comparison to knowing Christ, in comparison to helping them know Christ, that car doesn't even compare. And as we apply this, we can think the same about any of our things, can't we? We can put so much importance on them that they become more important than knowing Christ. How much do you value knowing Christ? Does the desire to know Jesus more mean more to you than anything else? As we look at the things we mentioned earlier, the materialism of our day, are you building your knowledge of Christ more than your stuff? When we look at the worldly wisdom of knowing more things, are you building your knowledge of Christ more than anything else? When we look at relying on our own self-righteousness, how we look, or our reputation, are we building our knowledge of Christ? Do we value knowing him more than our reputation? As we look at our careers and, and as we build those up, are we more concerned? Do we value more knowing Christ than anything else? Because Paul tells us that there is no greater thing than knowing Jesus and as you get to know him, and as you know these truths in your heart, everything else is as dung when compared. And as we come to remember what Christ has done, as we come before his table, we're going to stand together and sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And in this hymn, uh, we pick up some of the themes we've looked at in Philippians. Let me read you a couple of the things it says in this song. In the, in the first verse, it says, My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. We do that when we survey the wondrous cross. Verse 2, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrificed unto his blood. In verse 5, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And as we come to the communion table and as we sing uh, this hymn together, maybe uh, there's things in this hymn that you are singing, but you know you've not been living. But as we sing, and we'll have a time to pray afterwards on our own, let us confess these things to God and commit to knowing Christ more. And may that be our greatest value than anything else. So let's stand together and sing when I survey. <laughs>